Welcome to the Dear Black Boy Podcast, the therapeutic podcast for black men. I am your host, Montrell, a licensed graduate social worker in the DMV area. Our guest today is PJ Moten Poole. PJ is a licensed master social worker within the Texas area. PJ holds a Bachelor's of Art in Psychology and Sociology from Fisk University and also holds an MSW from Washington University and St. Louis Brown School of Social Work. PJ specializes in Black populations as well as Black LGBTQ plus individuals within the South. Sit back and relax and enjoy part two of our Black Men and HIV series entitled HIV and Shame. All right, everybody. So welcome back to the Dear Boy, Dear Black Boy podcast, excuse me, part two of our series, Black Men and HIV. And so today I have with me my guest, PJ Poole, and we're going to discuss HIV and shame. So how are you, PJ? How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So I'm excited to have you on and glad that you, you know, are here to provide your expertise in regards to HIV and, you know, the shame aspect of it. So before we begin, I promise myself that as I do this part four series that each guest that I have come on, uh, just explain or reiterate what HIV is again, because I know there may be listeners who may decide to jump on in the series, you know, maybe on episode three or episode one. And so I don't want them to miss that particular piece of the information. So can you just kind of reiterate what HIV is? Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So HIV is human immunodeficiency virus, and that's not to be confused with AIDS, which is acquired immune deficiency syndrome. One of the things that we find often in our Black community is that they use HIV and AIDS synonymous, in which they are very much different. Um, so um, HIV is a viral infection that can be transmitted only through blood, semen, breast milk, and vaginal secretions. And these are the only ways that can be it can be transmitted. To, to some uh, common, uh, and and other things. Um, another uh, interesting fact about um, HIV is that it was first discovered in 1981 um, in the San Francisco area, and initially it was seen as uh, a white gay man's disease and called Carposis sarcoma. Um, but as they found out more about the disease state and um, and how it was affecting people, how it was transmitting and things of that nature, that's how we got to where we are and the knowledge base that we have on HIV today. Okay, thank you. And so with that, uh, let's dive right into our episode today. And so I thought, you know, when planning out this particular series, it was important to address the shame aspect of HIV. I feel like a lot of times we don't necessarily discuss that. And that shame aspect really has a big impact on how those who live with HIV or who have came in contact with someone who is currently living with HIV uh, makes decisions around their overall health and just overall, like how they maneuver throughout society. And so with that, can you provide, like, what barriers does shame cause when those 
who are positive, engaged, and like care? Like, what what are the barriers that they face? Um, so one of the things that's uh, interesting about shame is I always kind of quantify shame as an internal process um, because the thing that comes with shame is her ugly sister guilt, right? And so. Mm-hmm. Shame and guilt typically come hand in hand. Shame is, well, I'm sorry, shame is more of an external, tri- externally triggered process. It's something that is triggered from um, how other people then begin to see you or how you perceive other people seeing you. Um, it stems from um, how, how you begin to shape your world based off of this new diagnosis. And then guilt is that kind of internal struggle that you deal with. Um, shame itself is is an actual barrier. It, 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 shame is actually a barrier itself. So, you know, things like lack of education, you know, increases one's um, kind of uh, spiral into this sh- the sh- shame uh, space. Um, shame can also be, a sh- be associated with like the fears that you get around sharing your status with other people. And what that rejection or judgment might feel like, or or your perce- your perception that you know rejection and judgment will be your ultimate fate. Um, shame can also be associated with uh, the idea that you'll never have a normal sex life, quote unquote normal, um, and what that means for you as an individual. You know, th- this idea that because I'm now li- living with HIV, that I'm in some type of way inherently a bad person or have has made bad decisions. Um, and so I, I, all of those things kind of really shape how shame shows up uh, with regards to one's HIV status. Um, another thing that I always kind of like think about really with shame is this idea that the misinformation that we have out there really shapes the way that people see those living with HIV. And it even shapes the way that people who are living with HIV see themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that, you know, HIV is a death sentence and that, you know, it completely changes your life. We've come so far in modern technology to where we can really make sure that people know that HIV becomes a small part of your life. If you're living with HIV or if you're at risk for HIV, it can really um, be formatted to be a smaller part of your life and not this big life changing circumstance that uh, that then uh, pushes you to this place of isolation. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to throw in to um, Brene Brown, who's a therapist, uh, licensed social worker, very big on shame, courage, and guilt. And That's kind of her framework. Mm-hmm. Um, she brought up a good point. She says shame is the focus on self and guilt is the focus on behavior. And she also went on to identify shame and guilt as shame being uh, I am bad and guilt is saying I did something mm-hmm. bad. And so I think that putting it in that context it allows individuals to kind of like distinguish between the two and then deal with each one separately as it regards to, you know, whatever they may be dealing with, not just HIV. Right. And even this idea of guilt being, I did something bad, right? That's the narrative we tell ourselves, guilt being, I did something bad. One of my good friends, Yolo Keely Robinson of Beam um, Collective in, um, in Los Angeles, which is a Black mental health agency, he talks about this idea of, what you do is not who you are. And so if you have a partner who has lied to you, that does not make them a liar. That just means that that is what they did to you. The thing that they did hurt you and not them intending to hurt you as a person. So really when you reframe this idea around guilt being um, the thing that I did that's bad, uh, really you have understanding that 
you know, that, that you are living with HIV and HIV is not who you are, right? It's a part of who you are. It's a part of your lived experience now. And it, it should shape itself accordingly, but not take up too much space in the fact that cause you to inherently believe that you are someone else because you are living with the virus. Mm, that's a good point. But adding to that too, like how does shame affect, you know, a person's decision-making when choosing intimacy and love you know, for those who are HIV positive or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I ask that is because um, I I kind of feel or I may be assuming here that like those who identify or who are living with HIV, uh, because of that shame factor, their decision making may be a little flawed, I would assume, or, you know, not everybody, but I, I guess I would assume those who are newly diagnosed mm-hmm. for the most part. Or, and, you know, it may even go beyond that. Like, how do, how does it affect one's decision-making when they choose to, you know, to continue to go after intimacy and love? I think um, it it does skew the way that one sees themselves in, engaging with others to a certain degree, but it's all a process, right? It's almost like a grieving process that one deals with once they get an HIV positive diagnosis, right? Like, it's the denial, it's the anger, it's the you know, resentment, it's all of the different stages. Um, and then once you come to a place where you can really reconcile where you are where and, and how this is now a part of your life and recognizing that it can be as small as just taking one pill a day that is the same size as your vitamins. It can be as small as as long as you're taking your medicine and undetectable, then you have no inherent risk of transmitting the virus to someone else. And so that that ultimately means that you're putting nobody at risk of contracting HIV from you, in which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that science. Um, but I think it really depends on how, um, where a person is and how they get to a place where they can re- really reconcile the identities around, this is who I am. I, I'm not living with HIV because of what I did, you know, inherently. I, I, I didn't you know, we don't always know what the situation is uh, when when one is engaging with somebody who might be HIV positive. I know I, I know several people, t- tons of people actually, who have been in what they call committed relationships with a monogamous partner and ended up contracting HIV because of a partner's infidelity. So it's not necessarily something that you can do to avoid it other than, of course, um, getting on PrEP, which is a tool, that, an internal tool that one can have but once you really get to that place where you can really reconcile what has happened to you and recognize that it's not because of you as a bad person, because of something that you did and not even because of something that you deserve because of the lifestyle that you live. Because, of course, in the black community, especially growing up in the South or in the church community, you know, you you do hear that that type of toxic behavior, that type of type of um, toxic verbiage sometimes as well. So um, I think you know, in the in the in the time in the space when you're really trying to reconcile what's happened to you, um, one can feel unloved. One can feel unworthy of love because of something that is now a part of their life. But there's always mm-hmm. a um, a beauty on the other side of that when one learns to love themselves beyond what they think others might think of them or love themselves beyond something that they are now carrying with them. Because everybody has their baggage and everybody's baggage looks different. Right. But it's about recon- it's, it's about reconciling the identities associated with that baggage to really um, recognize who you are as a whole person. Mm, that that's a very great point, especially just thinking about reconciliation 
And, you know, now you have, you know, HIV as part of your identity instead of, um, I guess, you what you want to, I guess the struggles that people are having a hard time trying to uh, come to grips with that newfound identity and how it's going to make, break, shift, or maybe build upon the rest of their identities. And I could see how that would impact a person tremendously when you think yeah. about it. It's like, wow. like. Yeah. But the thing is, I think people, I think what's really important, especially for Black communities to recognize, to, to, this, this is an idea that we all need to reconcile, right? Is that HIV is, HIV is an inherently a part of our lives whether you're positive mm -hmm. or negative, right? Or whether you're living with HIV or not living with HIV is because one, there's a high concentration of HIV in our community, in the black community in general, but even more so in the black same gender loving community. Two, HIV mm -hmm. does not have a name nor face nor preference or anything like that. If anybody is vulnerable for HIV. Black women are the, are the um, second leading um, um, population group with new incidences of HIV. You have Latinx men who are, or Latino men who are the, lar the leading group. You have the um, Black same gender loving men, um, whether they identify as straight or not, but engaged in same sex behavior are identified as the leading group for um, actual um, rates that are actually living with HIV. So it inherently becomes a part of all of our lives. And so what we have to do is learn how to navigate it in a way that doesn't make us like separate and apart from those living with HIV. Either you're going to get on PrEP if you know that you're vulnerable for HIV so that you can protect yourself internally, or you're living with HIV and you're gonna get on your medicine. So that makes you just as healthy or quote unquote clean as a person not living with HIV. Mm. So, adding on to that, why do you think the stigma exists around Black people and other marginalized people concerning HIV? Because I feel like when we discuss HIV, it's almost like a radar goes off <laughs> and it's like the target audience automatically becomes either Black people or other people of color. But, you know, HIV affects not just us, but it also affects, you know, white communities, Asian communities, it may not be as impactful, but it's there. And so I feel yeah. like the stigma is so like tough, especially within the black community. Why we don't see that with other other communities? Well, I think it's it, it's something that is inherently tied to the thing that shapes why black people are seen differently in this country in general is right is race, right? Mm -hmm. It's our access to equitable healthcare. It's our access to information. It's I, I'll take you back to this. So I've been working in the HIV field for 14 years this year. Um, H, um, PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is one pill that you can take one time a day that internally protects the cells that HIV attacks from HIV. So even if you were to have unprotected sex with someone living with HIV, you would not contract the virus because you're 90, 97 or 99% um, uh, percent of efficacy as far as this medication protecting you from HIV. That medication was approved by the FDA in 2012. Mm -hmm. They did not start marketing that medicine to Black men or to Black people in general until 2015-2016. Wow. That's the trend that we constantly see with new innovations as it, as it relates to medicine. We always see that the new the new uh, preventative medicines or the new or the vaccine or the the cure or all of these types of medical advances they reach the privileged they reach the the, the communities that have greater access that have income that have 
education. They reach all of these communities that have all of this privilege before they reach the communities that might need them most, the communities that, that, that bear the heaviest burden. Black communities are the communities that bear the heaviest burden. We are, we make a 14% of the U.S. population, but carry over 50% of the burden of HIV in this country. Mm. So that's ridiculous when you think about how skewed that message is. And so um, I think that one of the reasons why the stigma exists so heavily amongst our community is one, because we do carry the burden of the disease state. If you, if you were to imagine HIV having a face, right, uh, if, and look at the statistics to build that face, you would build a person of color, most likely a black man, most likely a black same gender loving man. Um, so, so the idea, the so, so the fact of the matter is that it is impacted our community in that way, but that's not inherently because we are any more risky than white communities, or that we're any more risky than Asian communities. Scientific uh, research has proven that we are we are actually less risky than those communities, but we have we also have less access to education, preventative measures. Um, um, health equity, we have less access to those things, which then builds a higher concentration of the virus in our community, which then ultimately allows it to spread a lot sooner. The same thing happened mm -hmm. with COVID, you know what I mean? Um, while it wasn't who was initially contracting COVID, once it did get to our communities, because we are, um, are further in proximity to adequate and um, and affordable health care, it then, when it burdens us, it burdens us to a mm. large degree. So, even in that same sense, like, why does this shame and guilt exist, seems like, around HIV, mostly, as opposed to other STDs or other STIs? Like, why is it that, you know, I guess, in some sense, it's almost as if HIV is the end-all, be-all for some people, and it's like, well, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we, how do we even get to this point? Well, I think it's that is, I, I think, I think it's this idea that it's, it's terminal versus mm -hmm. finite, right? Like, um, or temp, terminal versus temporal. SCIs are curable. You go, you go to the doctor, you get a shot, you wait 10 days and it's fine. You go out and back and do whatever you want to do. HIV is different. But, well, HIV is perceived as different. It's not as different because you do take your medicine right, and then you are uh, you are not uh, you are not uh, putting anyone who you're in sexual contact with at risk if you're taking your medicine and you're undetectable. but uh, but that type of information, again, is on that pipeline where it's a little skewed, it's a little left back, and that that type of information is not reaching our community. There is a large population, probably about, it's 45 to 45 to 55% of the black population does is not familiar with this idea of U equals U, which is undetectable equals mm -hmm. untransmittable. With that, it continues to build on the on the the narrative of the stigma that was already associated with HIV. Everything including um, uh, medical mistrust, everything including uh like disease states in general you know i i go home i'm from alabama i go home and i still have uh family members calling scis vd in the class <laughs> and stuff like that so it's, it's really crazy how how broad the the education gap is for our community and so that on top of like kind of religious um stigmas and just all of these other types of things that we're plagued with as a culture it just really feeds into this idea of shame, stigma, mm -hmm. and so guilt. So for those who are living with HIV, 
and may be struggling with a heavy burden of shame and guilt. And it, it may result in them not wanting to disclose their status. How does that impact like their relationships with other people, be it friendships or, you know, intimate relationships? Well, I'm going to be honest. I'm not one who is is out being the justice police and saying that everybody needs to disclose their status to their partners. I firmly believe in you equals you. And if an individual knows that they're taking care of themselves and know that they're on their medicine, if they are engaged in a casual hookup, I don't necessarily always find it pertinent to share your status if you know that you're not putting anyone at risk. But I also do understand, I mean, and me because that's, it's more than just, you know, I need to share my status because this person needs to know or this person doesn't need to know. It's it's about it's a matter of of um, of safety, too, because, you know, a lot of people, you know, because of the stigma and shame that we see existing in our community for this, people, you know, want to 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 be violent with people when they find out about their status. They want to, you know, attack people's careers and character and all these types of things. So it really becomes a matter of safety. Um, I am a proponent, though. Uh, though of if you are engaging in a meaningful relationship with somebody that that is a conversation that you should have early on because you know while a lot of people don't have the access to the information and the um, education around HIV there are a lot of people who do you'd be surprised as to how many people would be more willing to engage in that conversation if you invite them in as opposed to retaining that information from them and not giving them the choice to make the decision or, around how they want to mm. engage. So, and I, that would, that was going to answer my next question as to like, what are some of the consequences of shame when navigating experiences with HIV? And part of that is that, uh, you know, some people withheld information and then the other person that they're engaging in activities with end up, you know, kind of as collateral damage. And um, I would give it, but that's if they're collateral that's damage, right? That's if the person is not being responsible and, or I'm not even going to say not being responsible because it's a, it's partially being responsible, right? If you can get the medicine, you take the medicine, you take care of yourself. But it's also the matter of there's a large, there's a, a huge barrier in, in access for mm-hmm. people from our community. You have stable, a stable job, stable housing, stable, you know, everything ain't all, always free. And, you know, sometimes you can be at a certain, a certain margin and not be able to get medication for free and things of that nature. So it's, it's a real kind of sticky place because you have to really think about what a person's situation is. It's kind of like when you think about somebody homeless, you like, well, why won't they just go to a shelter? Why, why didn't want they just get in a program? Well, why would they want they just do this or do that? But you know, there's so many, we as social workers know that there's so many other layers that are associated with that, that prevent people from getting to a place. And so, you know, if a person, you know, it's, it's not 100% guaranteed that a person living with HIV has the ability to transmit it to someone else. Again, it is all about if they are have access and ability to take their medications, are willing to take their medications for whatever reason um, they may or may not, and are able to have that conversation and give someone the choice. So they they may or may not be collateral damage, but I think that it's always a dual responsibility. So it's the person, it's the responsibility of the person maybe not living with HIV and the person living with HIV to have that conversation so that each person then mm, has a choice. That's a very great point. How, what do you suggest for like black men, uh, like as as far as coping skills to deal with the guilt and the shame uh, that comes with contracting HIV. Cause I, we'd be remiss to say, Oh, uh, you know, if you were to contract 
HIV, you wouldn't experience get shame or guilt. That would be just totally like inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's even people who worked in the HIV field who entered into the field and had worked some time in the HIV field as a person not living with HIV and at some point seroconverted. And so it doesn't even matter whether you have, you know, access to knowledge or information. Sometimes it doesn't have a face, you know, it, it could be situational. Once again, there's, there's a lot of people that I know who've been in relationships and thinking that they're doing everything that they're supposed to do and still end up contracting the virus. So I think one of the things that is important around coping and around dealing with your, your diagnosis is getting as much information as you can about what's going on in your body, like knowing what, how the virus works. There's tons of resources online, videos, animations, all that kind of stuff that really show you how it works. Really getting behind the science of what's going on in your body, because the more you know about what's going on in your body, the better you can kind of position yourself to talk about who you are, right? You, you are not um, at the mercies of the disease that exists in your body, right? You then become the pilot to your narrative and, 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 and that then becomes a smaller part of who you are because you can recognize then that it can be as small as taking one medication a day you know, and going on with your life as normal. You know, it can be as small as visiting the, the doctor once or twice a year and making sure that you're good and going on about your life. It can be as small as that, but it can be as large as, you know, not necessarily having access to the medication and stuff like that. But the more you know, the better you can position yourself to deal with. So adding on to that as well. Um, so like, what does, like, how does shame and guilt or what does shame and guilt look like for those uh, who may be diagnosed with HIV? Like, what does that look like? personally, socially, structurally, emotionally, yeah. like how does shame and guilt look? So when those proponents come up, they know what it is and how to effectively deal with it. So one of the first things that probably comes up is you thinking that you're a bad person now that you're living with HIV or you're thinking that your life is no longer worth living. One of the CDC, CDC released a statistic maybe four years ago that stated that um, at the current rates, one in every two uh, Black same-gender-loving men will become HIV-positive by the age of 30. That built what I felt like was a sense of learned hopelessness. Mm. For a 16-year-old Black same-gender-loving man in the South, young boy in the South, who reads a statistic like that, that's like, well, hell, I'm going to get HIV anyway, so let me just go ahead and get it and get it out of the way. You yeah. know what I mean? Really building building this sense of self-efficacy around uh, and empowerment around your own sexual health is very important. To, and that's very important to do whether you're living with HIV or whether you're not living with, or, or you're not living with HIV, like to really kind of build your own power around that. I think socially to make these conversations, nor to normalize these conversations amongst your friend groups, you know what I mean? Um, so that if you are to become positive, like you have some type of social support you know, within your group or or even if that means that there's a local community center where you can get um, access to, a, to a, a support group or whatever the case is. I think really it's all of our responsibility, whether living with HIV or not, to really normalize the conversation around sex, HIV and STDs so that we can make sure that we're infusing the information into our communities that's necessary. Necessary, and then structurally, of course, there's always health health inequities that we are all all experiencing, and certain barriers 
that some of us face, depending on where we are in the spectrum of, of professionalism or, or in the spectrum of our professional career, in the spectrum of our life, in the spectrum of privilege. Um, and so there's a variety of barriers that people can face structurally, including um, things like the blood ban, where they ban all same gender loving men from um, giving blood because of the risk that, you know, one might be giving blood who is HIV positive when they have to test the blood anyway, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like insurance coverage where, you know, HIV at some point was seen as a pre-existing condition and people weren't able to get life insurance. Things like, uh, you know, in families where they might not know much about HIV and then require uh, a person to use plastic, silk plastic wear or not use, you know, the, the toilet that everybody else uses or use Clorox every time they use the toilet. Like all of those types of things really build on the idea of stigma and further isolates an individual um, who might be trying to trying to come to terms with their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of go back to those who... Um... I know you made a comment about like the first sign may be, oh, uh, I'm a bad person. And what I want to do is kind of address that. And because those thoughts come up in our everyday lives, depending upon, you know, different scenarios and decisions we make, we automatically think, oh, I'm a bad person or this will never go right. Or, you know, I'll never get that promotion. I'll never, you know, be the best at this and that. And what we call that in a clinical standpoint, uh, from a clinical perspective, we call that cognitive distortions. And cognitive mm-hmm. distortions are nothing more than inra- irrational thoughts. And to pretty much simplify that, irrational thoughts is no more than stinking thinking. And so those are thoughts right. that are pretty much like not real. And so to combat that... that we're telling us. Yeah, and so you always want to combat those thoughts with the opposite. So, you know, what if you are a good person? What if you what if you do succeed? What if it does turn out to work? And so those that's kind of how you combat that. Of course, too, you want to get with a clinician because it is a little bit more than that. But that's just kind of like the three point sermon around that particular piece. But in that something, too, you can kind of look up and Google. There are different excuse me. There are different ways that you can approach those types of thoughts. But. I tell clients all the time, you know, always asking the what if factor, like what if you are a good person? What if you do succeed? And so on and so forth. And kind of trying to restructure your thought process as to how you and look at yourself. About the profile of other people who may be like you. There's over 1.5 million people in this country living with HIV. They couldn't be all bad people. Right. right. Uh, think about the, you know, 16 year old young man that might have been molested by a family member who's contracted AIDS, who, 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 and then contract HIV. Does that make him a bad person? So, like, like reframing yourself as an individual, right? By 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 reframing the stories that you're telling yourself, but also reframing yourself in comparison to the other people that may be like you. You know, because mm-hmm. that's often how we see ourselves. We see ourselves in comparison to those around us, right? So, recognizing, I mean, using that as a tool as well to kind of reframe who you are, reframe and reaffirm who you are. Sometimes exactly. you need to remind yourself exactly who you are. And that may take a bit of work for some people because some people, quite honestly, may not know who they are. And so that's exactly. where the journey begins as to you finding yourself and then learning how to reconcile that uh, identity so that you can overcome shame and guilt and be able to live your, your best life. And that's why it's a responsibility so, for all of us to really normalize these conversations and to 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 normalize this idea of affirming oneself and affirming one's journey, no matter where you land. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I, I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head with it. We it it takes it truly takes yeah. a village, and so that reaffirming and reframing that doesn't just exist around shame and guilt. It just it doesn't just exist around HIV. It it exists in your everyday life, and that's why you hear a lot of, particularly in the black community, you hear a lot of old people say, you know, uh, you never know what a person right. is going through, and so because of that, you always want to be in a place of reaffirming or you know re. Um, what was the other one? Like <laughs> reframing and reaffirming. Reframing a person because, you know, what they may see in themselves as negative may ne- may not necessarily be something negative. It may be something positive, but because they can't see it, it may take for you to come step in and reaffirm right. it and speak life exactly. into that individual. And so we have to get in the habit of doing that on a daily right. basis. So... I know we talked a lot about shame and guilt, but what organizations or resources currently exist that, you know, are innovative for people and for the community as far as like holistic care for persons living with HIV? Um, I'll be honest. Essentially, when I created this series, I wanted to strictly focus on straight black men. And let me Mm -hmm. tell you why, because I feel like when the conversations of HIV come up, they're not as informed as you know those who are within the lgbtq plus community i feel like this is a topic that has been kind of beaten over their heads for so long and that you know they are well informed but then you switch it over to straight black men and it's kind of like uh but also too like just being on social media you'd be surprised at how many people within the lgbtq plus and so on and so forth community don't know much about it either so i was like huh okay, well, maybe we should, like, not assume and just put the information out there and whoever needs it is there. So with that being said, like, what are some resources that you would recommend for other people to go out and get information, whether it's about uh, care, whether it's just kind of, like, you know, information about HIV, medications, all that. Real quick, just to add on to what you were saying about, like, straight straight Black men versus um, the LGBTQ spectrum of Black men, the one one of the things that I've come to realize working in this field for so long is that um, sexuality is really is a spectrum, right? And like, mm-hmm. if an if, if an individual identifies as straight, um, sometimes their their behaviors might not always align with that, and that's not to say that all right. black men do that. But I will say that the prevalence is a lot higher than what we give it credit for. Whether that's black men who are only into trans women or black men who only recreational, they have sex with other men. Not only that, again, Black women are the the second highest um, new rate of, of increasing um, um, HIV infections in the country, right? And so Black men have sex with Black women, right? And so it really ultimately just really becomes a melting pot of everybody, Black people in general. So mm-hmm. HIV is a Black issue, not just a Black gay issue, not a Black straight issue. And so it really is important for us to normalize the conversation around HIV and Blackness and not HIV and LGBTQness or HIV and hetero uh, heterosexuality uh, or anything like that. I'm glad you brought that up because a part one of the series when I w- that I did with uh, Dr. Adams talking about access to care, he too also said that Black women are disproportionately affected with HIV. And I thought that was interesting because I always thought it was Black men. And then if you look into it with an uh, a even smaller lens, I guess you can say, um, some would even say black man, but but particularly black gay man, which we already know, like, 
the stats on that. But for the most part, I never would have thought black women were disappointed. Because you also have black women who have sex with black men who have sex with men, or you have black women who have Mm. sex with you know, uh, with with trans women who, you know, fall into that same category. And so when you think about like um, transmission, modes of transmission and things of that nature, and you think about this melting pot of who our social and sexual networks are, the sexual, sexual network, it really starts to weave and get real complex. So just because a person identifies as something does not mean that they won't engage in behaviors that are otherwise seen as uh, 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 as not in alignment with their primary uh, sexual orientation. Mm, yeah, that's good. And it's it, and I'm telling you, it's a lot, lot, lot more prevalent than people give it credit for. You like, I know, I probably know more black straight men who prefer trans women than I know black straight men who prefer cisgender women. And that's not mm-hmm. just because I exist in that circle, right? Because I exist in a whole bunch of circles and they might not be open or upfront about that, but it's becoming something normal. And trans women deserve to be loved, right? You know, trans women deserve to be mm-hmm. cared for in that type of way. And because, you know, that the stigma that exists with all of that should not keep people from trying to be with each other. Even if that means mm-hmm. just sharing a moment. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I just truly believe like the world is. is just changing and ever evolving. And it's really it's really kind of cool to just sit back and just watch it all unfold. It is. It's 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 such an in- interesting thing. So I think that one of our duties as black people is to really undo the things that we've learned that have has placed us in these boxes. All these white people have given us all these labels and now we're obsessed with the labels just like the white people were that divided us when we we come from a communal society where people love people for who they are not because of what's between their legs you know and that. so mm-hmm. I, i'm a i'm of that mindset but resources um because i know that we're running out of time but resources there's thrive ss or thrive support services in atlanta georgia it started out as a facebook group that supported black men living with hiv and has now turned into a full service a uh, full aid service organization that is connecting people to care connecting people to prep providing mental health services as well as additional support programming and culture programming so things around like events and spoken words and all that kind of stuff you have Abounding Prosperity Incorporated in Dallas, Texas that does all of that and also partners with Dallas Southern Pride to provide all types of social um, engagement and community mobilization opportunities. And then another one um, is Us Helping Us in Washington, D.C. That is also another agency that provides um, similar services. And all of these are Black-led organizations led by Black people, serving Black people in the most culturally affirming way possible. Mm. Where can people find um, you? You can find me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram name is PJ Phoenix. That's PJ P H O E N I X. Um, also, my family's Instagram is at Shifting Intersections. Um, and then on Twitter, you can find me at PJ underscore Moten. And then Facebook, PJ Moten Pool. So, lastly, so. For the Black men who may be listening to this podcast, who uh, I imagine uh, 
because you know this conversation always for some reason I feel like it shakes black men up a little bit or it shakes yeah. black people up regardless whenever we talk about HIV um, you know for the ones who uh, may be recently diagnosed or you know maybe have been living with HIV for some time but still struggle with that shame and guilt aspect of it uh, what affirmation or word of encouragement would you give to them and you know frankly what would you give to the rest of us who may not have HIV but uh, you know struggle to get past the labels and see the hum- humanity mm-hmm. in people like what word of encouragement or advice would you give? So I'll say this dear black boy embrace the struggle of the unlearning so that you can allow yourself to live in the beauty that is all of who you are and have always been. Mm. That's deep. So PJ, I just want to say thank you for coming on. I appreciate your support. And it was, I love this conversation. Like this was a conversation that I feel like needed to have and we need to continue to have. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm happy to come back anytime to continue to talk about it. No problem. Thank you. As always, I want to thank you all for supporting and listening. I really appreciate it. I also want to remind you that this podcast is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. With that being said, stay tuned for part three of the series. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.